The hearing was before the subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs. Presiding, Senator Alan J. Hagister of Kentucky. <coughs> All right, General Finch. You've made the technical situation fairly comprehensive, even to an old cane break, redneck hillbilly like myself. <laughs> I have tried to make the gravity of the situation apparent, sir. It appears to me, General, that the sacred life of a human being created in the image of his maker is in danger. There's no light thing to be thrown away like some guinea pig. If that ship wasn't safe, if that poor man up there in the cave of night is to die, Somebody is responsible. Isn't that right, General? Sir, a manned rocket was sent up because of one simple fact. It takes a computer of tremendous versatility and capacity to operate a Harrison-Munch reactor engine. A computer of infinite complexity. And I ask you, General, I put the question to you, why was such a computer not designed? It has been designed, sir. It was designed a half a million years ago. There is only one mechanism competent to handle those controls, sir. That is the human brain. <clears throat> All right. I turn now to my second question, General, and I ask it not only for myself and my colleagues on this committee, but for 170 million Americans listening on the radio, watching on television. With that man up there living out his last days, why was it not possible to send a ship up after him? Why was there no second ship built? For one reason, Senator, money. The appropriation for rocket research fell short by 12% of the amount needed even to build one vessel. Oh, frankly, gentlemen, the deficiency was made up by cutting corners and diverting funds from other projects. That is not the point, General. There's a man up there who's going to die. With the limited funds you gave us, we've done what we set out to do. We've demonstrated that space flight is possible, that a space platform is feasible. If there is any inefficiency, if there is any blame for what has happened, it lies at the door of those who lack the confidence and the courage and ability of their countrymen to fight free of Earth to their greatest glory. Senator, how did you vote on that? <laughs> this is Harry Anders in the gallery of the Washington National Cathedral. This is a special prayer service called by the Dean of the Cathedral for the safety of Lieutenant McMillan and for the success of the recently announced rescue plan. The church is filled. There's a sprinkling of high Navy, Army, and Air Force uniforms. I see General Finch in the second row, next to the Secretary of the Air Force and the newly appointed Undersecretary of Defense, Mr. Winokur. Prominently displayed in the center aisle, below the ornate railing separating the pews from the altar, is the small model of Macmillan's ship. One by one now, the congregation is filing past, dropping checks, bills. I saw one child drop in 12 pennies, one by one. All contributions are to be used to defray the cost of the rescue effort. The congregation is now kneeling to pray. A moment of silent prayer will follow for the safety and rescue of Lieutenant McMillan.
One billion dollars was raised in one week from voluntary contributions. Another billion and a half was appropriated unanimously by Congress. The race began. Would the rescue party reach the ship in time? Of course, we didn't know then. And daily we listened to the voice of the man we hoped to buy back from death. Uh, now, look, Bill. On these Macmillan broadcast tapes, uh, don't let some, some ignorant engineering vice president holler because it's not broadcast quality. Believe me, I knew Macmillan. More of that wild Texan in these tapes than in any, any hi-fi, super-frequency response studio recordings. Just listen. You, you'll see what I mean. I've been staring out the portholes. I never tire of it. Through the window at the right, I see a black velvet curtain with a strong light behind it. There are pinpoint holes in the curtain, and the light shines through, not winking the way stars do, but steady. There's no air up here. That's the reason. My oxygen is holding out better than I expected. By my figures, it should last 27 days more. I shouldn't use so much of it talking all the time, but it's hard to stop. Talking, I feel as if I was still in touch with the Earth. Still one of you. Even though I am way up here. Too bad the receiver is broken, but if it had to be one or the other, I'm glad it was the transmitter that came through all right. There's only one of me. There are billions of you to talk to. You can't see me now. You'll have to wait hours for the dawn. I'll have mine in a few minutes. That's the way he talked. And as we listened to the lonely voice from the night, the engineers, the scientists, the construction men worked round the clock. General Finch presented the problem in the pool interview. I asked the questions for the combined networks that afternoon. Most of you heard the complete broadcast live as he briefed the world with the clipped laconic delivery of a soldier. There are two basic problems. We've recovered the first and second stages of the rocket. We've only to construct the third stage. The second problem is more difficult. The pilot. Lieutenant McMillan was the only man physically and psychologically qualified. We discovered that in our first program. His training and orientation took 18 months. We have now to duplicate this in 27 days. You think it's possible, General? I don't know. Uh, that's all, Mr. Anders. Uh, Stevenson, get me some coffee, will you? Black and some kind of sandwich, no butter, no mayonnaise. And then the voice from the cave asked a question and expected no answer. Do you hear me down there? Sometimes I wonder. I wish there was some way I could be sure you were hearing me. Just that one thing might keep me from going crazy. I was there the night we answered that question. I was there in a helicopter over Kansas City. speaking to you from a helicopter over Kansas City. There are 15 seconds till midnight. The plan was developed by General Finch. At precisely midnight, every light in the city will be out and then flashed on in two-second intervals. This will be the exact moment that McMillan's ship is calculated to pass overhead. It's, it's almost time now. Five, four, three, two, one... There they go. Off. On. Off. On. 
Off. On. I see it. I see it. Kansas City winking at me. Oh, yes, I can see it. Thanks. Thanks. You're listening. I know that now. I'm not alone. I'll never forget. I'm waiting for you. We're recording in the press gallery of the Goddard Rocket Base main construction hangar. The vast third stage component stands before us, men swarming up and down the gantry cranes. The Mark III is being built to carry five men instead of one. The pilot selection has been kept a top secret to avoid unnecessary strain on the men selected. The latest progress report gives a possible margin of six hours between the launching of the rescue ship and the estimated exhaustion supply of oxygen to Lieutenant McMillan. Oh, the shift is changing now. The expert construction workers recruited from across the country by the combined efforts of the Air Force Personnel Service, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the International United Electrical Workers and United Auto Workers of the AFL-CIO. The margin is six hours. Six hours between life and death for Lieutenant Reverdy L. McMillan. saw the sun rise over Russia. It looks like any other land from here. The green where it should be green. Farther north, a, a sort of mud color. And then white where the snow is still deep. 